2006, September 28th. Today is Lecture 7, The Four Seasons, which will begin in just a moment. Now, yesterday we talked about the daily and annual motions, and we noted how the annual path of the sun across the sky on this line called the ecliptic was a tilted path with respect to the celestial equator. And we saw how the length of the day depended on where the sun was in declination across the t course of the year. We're going to now take that idea and run with it a little bit and look at one of the consequences of that, namely the existence of the four seasons, which is a consequence of the tilt of the Earth's axis with respect to its orbital plane. So the key ideas today are to talk about the four seasons physically. The four seasons are a consequence of the tilt of the Earth's axis with respect to the plane of its orbit around the sun. And by saying what the seasons are due to, it's necessary to emphasize what the seasons are not due to. It's not due to changes of the distance between the Earth and the sun. In fact, the distance between the Earth and the sun to a first approximation makes no difference in the climate on the Earth. Now, the tilt of the axis causes the seasons how? Why is it that the axis being tilted gives us winter, spring, summer, and fall? The answer will turn out to be two factors which come into play. One of them is that the amount of direct sunlight you get depends upon the sun angle with respect to your local horizon, your local, your local idea of up and down. That's what a concept we call insolation. Not insulation, meaning the fluffy stuff in your walls to keep the heat in, but insolation, the amount of sunlight reaching the ground. Is, it, is the sunlight coming straight down, or is it coming in at a slanting angle? It's also going to depend on a second factor, and that's the length of the day. And that depends fairly critically on your latitude. In fact, the end of le yesterday's lecture, we saw how the length of the day was related to where the declination of the sun was. Is it north or south of the celestial equator? And how many hours it spends above your local horizon? Both of these are going to turn out to depend upon the time of the year, where, what the sun's declination is, the sun's position north or south of the celestial equator, and your location on the Earth. And this is what gives us the various climate zones on the Earth. Finally, I want to say something about the location of those equinoxes in the sky, that time when the sun is exactly on the celestial equator. We speak of them often as if they're fixed places in the sky, but in fact they're not. They slowly move across the sky on a very, very slow motion that takes about 26,000 years. And that motion is called the precession of the equinoxes. And it's actually one of the important extra motions in the sky that you can observe not day-to-day -day or month-to-month, -month, but you have to observe over many centuries to begin to distinguish with the naked eye and without telescopes this extra motion in the heavens that becomes another motion that has to be explained by your picture of, the, of, of how the world works. So today we're going to talk about the seasons, a familiar topic I'm sure to all of you, but I'm going to use it as a departure to talk about particular astronomical problems of the tilt of the Earth with respect to the sun and this concept of precession. Let's begin. The Earth's rotation axis is tilted with respect to the plane of its orbit around the sun. This tilt is an amount of about 23.5 degrees in the present day, and we call this the obliquity of the ecliptic. It's just simply a tilt angle, and I've got my globe here. We normally think of the Earth as a nice sphere, and I've got an exaggerated north polar axis here in, in cardboard and, plas and paper on the top. And this is what we usually think of as the notion of up, the notion of north. And if the plane of the Earth's orbit were the same as the plane of the uh, stage that I'm standing on here, 
And as I move around in my orbit around the sun, that pole would just simply keep pointing upwards. I'd just sort of be holding the Earth up like this. But the Earth's pole isn't, the Earth's axis and equator are not aligned with the plane of its orbit. They're tilted by a certain amount. And that angle is about 23 and a half degrees. Now it turns out this globe is not perfectly made and they've made this angle about 637 degrees, but you get the basic idea. The exaggeration is there with the tilt of the orbit pointing away, not straight up, but away from the straight up and down line with respect to the plane of the orbit, which I'm going to define for my demo as the plane of the stage. Now one important thing to remember about this tilt is that the Earth's axis points to the same position in space. It does not point at the sun. So as the Earth moves around the sun on its orbit, on its orbital plane, that pole stays pointing in exactly the same direction. Here I've got it pointing off from your position to the right in the room towards those lights up there. So as I go around, it doesn't change its orientation. So you have to sort of get away from the idea that often is a misconception that as the Earth rotates orbits around, it does this number. This is the very much Three Stooges kind of action. You know, it's going around like that. That doesn't happen. It's angling at a particular place in the sky. Where? Well, if I look off in that direction towards the north, I would see it's very close right now to the star Polaris at the end of the Little Dipper. It's pointing towards the North Celestial Pole. Indeed, that's the definition of the North Celestial Pole. It's where on the sky the projection of the Earth's rotation axis points as a function in, in the sky. So as I move around the sky, move around my orbit, I always move, of course I move in the wrong way, I always move in a right-hand rule relative to this notion of up and down in the plane of this orbit. And the Earth will always appear to maintain this orientation, always pointing at the same place off in space while it's simultaneously spinning away, doing its thing across day to day, year to year. And it's that tilt which gives us the effect of the seasons. Now, currently this is pointing towards Polaris. But it does, in fact, change very slowly with time. This is the idea of precession of the pole or precession of the equinoxes that we're going to see towards the end of the lecture. So let's draw a picture we saw from last time. At the end of class last time, we talked about the celestial sphere. Here's the Earth in the center. The celestial sphere is this notional sphere that exists at a very large distance, and all the stars and planets and everything else appear to be riding along this sphere. The celestial equator is the projection of the Earth's equator. And the celestial north and celestial south poles are simply the intersection between the Earth's poles and the celestial sphere projected outwards. The celestial equator is our reference point for the motions of stars. As stars are at a fixed declination, they appear to move around on parallel circles as the Earth rotates. But the sun is different. The sun certainly rises in the east and sets in the west every day at its particular declination. But at the same time that the sun is rising in the east and setting in the west, moving from east towards west, reflecting the rotation of the Earth, there's a second motion going on that's much slower and more subtle. The Earth is orbiting the sun in the same sort of right-hand sense of rotation. And as a consequence, while the sun rises in the east and sets in the west at declination, its declination is changing slowly as the sun moves approximately one degree along this tilted line, tilted circle, called the ecliptic. And this angle between the ecliptic circle and the celestial equator is that 23 and a half degree obliquity of the ecliptic. 
So by drawing my celestial sphere this way with respect to the equator of the Earth, you have to actually change your perspective a bit now to talking about the perspective of the Sun. And what I find is my celestial sphere is in fact a tilted sphere relative to the circle of the Earth's orbit. Now I've exaggerated the scale here so that you can see the Earth and the approximate circle of its orbit. It's actually an ellipse, but we'll talk about that much later. It's a detail we don't need today. It, at least not yet. So I've made the Earth a whole lot bigger than its orbit. Its orbit is 150 million kilometers, and the Earth is only about 7,000 kilometers in radius. So I see this effect of the Earth's pole always pointing off towards the same place in space, which nowadays is towards the constellation of Polaris. And at the different major times of the year, the sun is either on the celestial equator at the times of September and March. The sun is north of the celestial equator in June, and it is south of the celestial equator in December. So when I move my perspective to the perspective of the Earth's plane, now describing my principal plane across this picture, the Earth's orbital plane describing this, this principal plane, I now see made manifest the tilt of the Earth's orbit here. And I've drawn it in the correct 23 and a half degree tilt in this diagram. Now that's again a view from above. That's kind of you know the view of the gods looking down upon the Earth and the Sun. But what do we see standing on the Earth? Right? Because that's our perspective. And this is how we have to figure out what's going on. I can't break away from the Earth. I've got to stand on the Earth and piece together this motion by watching it over the years. Here's my, here's my local horizon circle. I have the horizon here and the ground, the north compass points, north, out, south, east, and west. The zenith is straight up. I'm at middle northern latitudes, so the north celestial pole is an angle of my latitude above my northern horizon. And the celestial equator is a tilted path at 90 degrees minus my latitude above the equator, so uh, above the horizon. So for example, here in Columbus, the north celestial pole is 40 degrees above my north horizon, and the celestial equator is at an angle of 50 degrees above the horizon. And so I can just simply, by turning in this way, trace out approximately where the celestial equator should be in my sky. It's just an arc, just sort of sweeping my arm along like this. Now, on the day of the vernal and autumnal equinoxes is the day when the sun, the ecliptic, is on the sun, whose path is the ecliptic, crosses the celestial equator. In the spring, it's crossing the celestial equator, moving towards northern declinations. And in the autumn, it's crossing the celestial equator, moving south towards southerly declinations. When the sun is exactly on the equator, celestial equator, it will appear to rise exactly in the east and set down in the west. When the sun reaches its maximum northern point, 23 and a half degrees declination, it's an easy number to remember because it's exactly the obliquity of the ecliptic, the sun is now as far north of the celestial equator as it ever gets. That means it will rise to the northeast because it's north of the equator go to a maximum height above the ground, and then set in the, north, in, the, in the northwest. At the opposite time of year, in December, when the sun is at its maximum southerly declination, and I've exaggerated it here for just for detail, the sun is south of the celestial equator, therefore it will rise to the southeast, not come near as high in the sky as seen from northern latitudes, and then set in the southwest. So we can see a number of effects coming into play. On the day of the vernal and autumnal equinox, exactly half of the sun's apparent daily path is above the horizon, 
So the day will last 12 hours, followed by 12 hours of night in round numbers. On the summer solstice, most of the sun's path is above the horizon, and only a small portion is below. So from the latitude of, say, Columbus, daytime will last almost 16 hours, and nighttime will be the other eight hours. And then in the winter time, I reverse the situation. Only a small fraction of the sun's daily apparent motion is a, will bring it above the horizon. Day will last about nine or hours or so at northern latitudes like Columbus, and it will spend the rest of the time below the horizon. So day is shorter than night in the winter, day is longer than the night in summer, and day and night are equal at the time of the equinoxes. So let's go through each of these times and look at them in detail as to what their consequences are, both for the position of the sun as seen in the local sky and then the global view of how the sunlight changes across the Earth. The equinoxes occur in March and September of the year. They're the times when the axis of the Earth is at right angles to the sun. So now I'm going to make my perspective for the sun be all of you in the audience. At the time of the equinox, the sun is exactly on the celestial equator, which means it's also going to be above the equator of the Earth here. So you all see you're the standing in the position of the sun is your position as you will see the axis on this direction here. It's kind of working on a line perpendicular to the direction between the Earth's sunlight. In this time, as the Earth rotates, you get days of exactly equal length, day and night. And that's simply because the sun is on the celestial equator, as the previous picture shows. In March, when this occurs, the sun is basically moving from southern declinations to northern declinations, and the moment of the equinox is when the center of the sun crosses the celestial equator. When this occurs in March, we call this the vernal equinox. Vernal comes from the Latin invernus, meaning spring. And it turns out that in the northern latitudes, it is springtime in March, but in southern latitudes, it's autumn. Because as viewed from this northern hemisphere, the sun is moving norther, more and more northerly in the sky. The days are getting progressively longer, and that moves us into the climactic season of spring. Whereas in the southern hemisphere, because now you've got the south celestial pole above your horizon, as the sun moves north, it's now moving closer to your, to your other horizon and spends less of the time above that horizon. So your days are actually getting shorter in March if you're down in Chile. And so about this time of year, when it starts getting cooler and the trees start losing their leaves in the northern latitudes, if I was to fly down to 40 degrees south latitude, which is a, a location south of Santiago de Chile, I would actually see the trees beginning to bud out, the days getting longer, and the days getting warmer. Identical time of the vernal equinox. The opposite side of, that, of the sky for that, six months later, the sun is now on the, on the celestial equator again, now with the sun moving from northern to southerly latitudes. This is what happened last Friday, late at night. In September, we call this the autumnal equinox. Autumnal from autumn, it's also the Latin word for the fall in our, in our colloquial language. It's northern autumn and southern spring. So again, this time of year, it's now spring down in Santiago. This is what, if I look at this from the Earth, from the outside, and I look at the rays of the sun, this is what's going on. The equator here is drawn as this red line. You see the day-night division here. The north and south poles are arranged perpendicular to the line of the sun. 
And if I'm sitting on the equator, the sun is straight overhead. In fact, the sun goes through a zenith crossing on the day of the equinox as seen from anywhere on the equator, like say down here in Quito. And I get the angle of the sun depends, of course, on my latitude. The sun is overhead on the equator. It's just on the horizon at the north and south poles. And of course, it gets progressively higher and higher in the sky as I march further and further south, reflecting, for example, the question we had today. That's the equinoxes. Very simple time, twice a year, March and September. There are two solstices a year, which occur when the sun is at its maximum northern and maximum southern position. We can call this one the December solstice, or you can sometimes refer to it as the, summer sol the winter solstice. Almost blew that one. I think I believe I refer to it as winter solstice in your, in your notes. I realized as I turned on my computer this morning that I'd forgotten to make the same change in my lecture notes on the PowerPoint. I apologize. I was trying to be, not try to be non-hemispherically incorrect by talking about summer and winter, because I've got a lot of southern friends who, who chastise me for that, and I blew it. You know, being politically correct, sometimes you just never win. The December solstice. This is the solstice that occurs in December. We call it the winter solstice. It's when the Earth's north pole is tilted away from the sun. So now we've come around into that time of the orbit when the Earth's pole is pointing away from the sun. So if I make, again, all of you in the perspective of the sun, the Earth's pole is pointing away from you. Now you can see that the straight up and down position is at southerly latitudes. I'm sitting here where I've drawn it. Let's rotate this around to give it a continent I know. It's in the middle of the ocean. So the sun is high in the sky in South America, but it's low in the sky in North America. The sun is at its maximum southerly declination. That's the definition of the, of the winter solstice. Northern winter occurs during the December solstice. When December is when it, we have the, the darkest days of, of the winter. The sun is lowest in the sky as viewed from northern latitudes. And because it spends so little of its time above the horizon, day is shorter than the night. However, Exactly the opposite, down in the southern hemisphere, it's the middle of summer on the day of the December solstice. The sun is very, very high in the sky as viewed from Chile and Australia, and the day is longer than the night because the sun spends most of its time above the horizon. I've had the unusual experience, and it's a very strange physiological experience, aided by modern air travel of getting on an airplane in Santiago, Chile at 98 degrees Fahrenheit and landing in Columbus in the middle of January and it's four below Fahrenheit and doing that in the course of 10 hours. Needless to say, the next two days I had an absolutely wicked head cold as a consequence of that, probably caught on the airplane. But you can change climate dramatically just by flying north and south. The only difference is, in between these, at the various latitudes, if you're on the equator, doesn't matter, man. Sun's up above the horizon 12 hours a day. Oh, yeah, okay, it really is above the northern horizon or the southern horizon. It's mostly up in the south during the wintertime, but it's still 12 hours a day. A little bit different sun angle, but it's still warm and sunny. This is why people like to live on the equator. So if I look at the picture here, again, now we have the northern axis in the December or winter solstice pointed away from the sun. The sun is making a long glancing angle in the northern hemisphere, but in fact it's straight overhead at the Tropic of Capricorn, minus 23 and a half degrees south latitude, a little bit south of, the, uh, of overhead as viewed from the equator, but it's high in the sky, summer in the south, winter in the north, and you can see by the kind of fraction of the northern hemisphere above the equator here that's in light, that's about the right proportions of day and night. So you can see the day is longer than the night in the south, 
but day is shorter than the night in the north. So it's a very nice picture to draw for yourself to be able to see all these divisions here. Well, the opposite number of this, of course, is the June or so-called summer solstice. This is now when the Earth's pole is at the position in its orbit where the pole is now pointing towards the sun. Now you see the northern hemisphere coming very nearly face on, head on, and the southern hemisphere, the sunlight coming in, gives a long glancing blow to the Earth. The sun is at its maximum northern declination. It's as far north as it ever gets to the celestial equator, and we have northern summer. The sun is high in the sky. The day lasts much longer than the night. In the southern hemisphere, the sun is low in the sky, and the day is shorter than the night. And again, I've gone down to Chile in the middle of the summertime, and sure enough, you get into an airplane in Columbus, and you better be carrying a heavy jacket, and everyone's looking at you funny. But within 12 hours, I'm going to be on top of a 2,500-meter mountain wearing a down jacket because of my travel from the north to the south. There I am in July, standing on a mountaintop, freezing my butt off in the southern hemisphere, even though it's summer up north, all because of the difference of the length of the day and the amount of sunlight hitting the ground. And if we draw the picture, of course, as we've drawn here before, now the Earth's pole is pointing towards the general direction of the sun, the sun is highest in the sky. In fact, it's right on the zenith at the northern tropic, the Tropic of Cancer, which we saw the other day when we talked about Eratosthenes and measuring the circumference of the Earth. The sun is high in the sky in the north, low in the sky in the south. Day is shorter than night in the south, longer than the night in the north. And this picture shows that very graphically and very simply. So that gives us the four basic positions of the sun, it changes the length of the day and it changes how direct the sunlight is. And it's these two effects, amount of direct sunlight plus the length of the day, how many hours of sunlight you have in a 24-hour period, that are the determiners of climate at the middle latitudes. This effect of the angle of the sun turns out to be the critical one for determining the, the, the character of the weather during the seasons at middle latitudes. It's a concept of something known as insolation. What matters for solar heating, we get the heat for our weather from the sun, first and foremost with, with a bullet. What matters for how much solar heat we capture is the angle that the sun makes with respect to the ground, how, whether the rays are coming straight in or they're hitting at an angle. If the sun is directly overhead at the zenith, so I'm on the equator, I'm on the day of one of the equinoxes, and the sun comes straight overhead at noon, and I drew a circle on the ground, one square meter in area, and I added up all of the energy falling in that square meter, I would get an amount of energy of 1,000 watts falling in that square meter. So it's equivalent to having 1,000 watts of power absorbed by the ground there. That's how much light is hitting the ground. Now, some fraction of it's absorbed by the ground, some fractions bounced off, of course. However, as the day progresses and the sun is now 30 degrees off the horizon, the sun is now coming down at a long, glancing angle. And so that square meter of sunlight now hits at an angle and gets spread out. In fact, it gets spread out. I chose 30 degrees specifically. It gets spread out over two square meters. So face on, I get 1,000 watts per square meter. But if I now spread that 1,000 watts out over two square meters, I'm now only getting 500 watts per square meter of heating. So every little patch of the ground is receiving half the amount of sunlight in terms of energy, watts per area, that it got at noon when the sun was straight overhead on the equator, on the, on the equinox. 
And it's the amount of energy falling in that area that sets my amount of heating. It literally is a factor of two, just due to the change in the geometry of the sun being from overhead to the sun now getting within 30 degrees of the horizon, either rising or setting on either side of its path. And again, we could see this more clearly as a picture. I get about 1,000 watts, a kilowatt per square meter coming down from the sun. And if the sun is straight overhead, I get this spot of one square meter. But if I now tilt that sun 30 degrees off the horizon, I smear that spot out over two square meters. There's still a kilowatt coming down in the straight-in bundle. And so now I get 500 watts for every square meter. I've taken my kilowatt, but I spread it out over twice the area. And again, this is a fairly easy thing to see. You can do it with a flashlight. I'm looking straight here at the screen. I get the maximum amount of light concentration. But as I hit at a greater and greater and greater angle, it spreads out. The brightness of the flashlight hasn't changed a bit. What's changed is not so much the brightness of the flashlight, but how that light is spread out over the surface of the ground. And that's the key ingredient, this effect of spreading of light as you move from indirect to direct lighting is the process of insulation. And again, you can see this taking apart those four pictures at the different times of the year. Winter solstice, vernal equinox, summer solstice, autumnal equinox is seen from the north. You get very, very glancing sunlight in wintertime, closer to straight overhead in the vernal equinox, as close to straight overhead as you ever get on the day of the summer solstice, and then, again, starting to get less and less of an angle at noon on the autumnal equinox. So you get minimum heating here, fewer watts per square meter of ground in the north, maximum heating, maximum number of watts per square meter in the summer when the sun is as close to overhead as you get. And of course, if you were on the equator proper, you would get that maximum heating in the spring or the autumn. And then you would get a slight diminution. The maximum heating on the ground occurs at the tropics, the Tropic of Cancer at the summer solstice, the Tropic of Capricorn, 23 and a half degrees south latitude on the day of the winter solstice. So you get maximum heating in the south in winter, minimum heating in the north in winter, and so on through the sequence here. And that's what gives us the primary difference in temperature and weather that we get through the course of the seasons. Now there's an additional wrinkle that comes into play here, is for convenience in PowerPoint, I draw the Earth's orbit as if it was a circle. I talk about the Earth going around the circle of the sun. The Earth's path, the Earth's orbit around the sun is not a circle, it's an ellipse. It's basically a squashed and stretched circle which is slightly elongated in one direction. The amount of elongation is, is small compared to the size of the orbit. In round numbers, the average distance of the Earth and the Sun is 150 million kilometers. But there's a tiny difference from one side to another of about a part in 30, which means that there are two different times during the year when the Sun is furthest from the Sun and the nearest from the Sun. The ellipse is off-center a little bit. And we'll see that in more detail in the next couple of weeks when we talk about planetary orbits in more detail. These times of greatest distance and, and least distance have special names. Greatest distance is aphelion. It comes from the Greek apo, meaning away, and helios, meaning the sun. So aphelion is greatest distance of the Earth from the sun. At the moment of aphelion, the Earth is 152.1 million kilometers from the sun. Not a number you need to know in detail, but just one to sort of stick in the back of your head somewhere. 
So for example, in 2005 and 2006 and so forth, aphelion has occurred around July 4th, July 5th. But it occurs in July, when we are furthest from the sun. The other side of the orbit is on the near side of the elliptical orbit, called perihelion. Para as in proximity, and helios for the sun. So it's close to the sun. And now the Earth is 47.1 million kilometers from the sun. And this occurs in January. For example, it occurred on January 4th this year. will occur in January 4th, close to the 5th, in 2007. The reason for the one-day slop in there is because our calendar is an even number of days, and the Earth takes 365 and a quarter days to actually complete one full circle of an orbit, as we'll see next week when we talk about time. And so that introduces kind of this jigging and jagging back and forth relative to leap years. Now, if you look at the difference between aphelion, greatest distance, and perihelion, closest distance between the Sun and the Earth, the difference is about 5 million kilometers. That seems like an awful lot. Remember, the Earth is only about 14,000 kilometers in diameter at the equator. So you've moved a whole lot. 5 million kilometers is huge. But it's 5 million kilometers out of 150 million for the average distance from the Earth to the Sun. So yes, it's true. When you're at perihelion, you are closer to the sun, you are closer to the heat of the sun, and therefore you do, in fact, receive more watts per square meter than at aphelion when you're further away. Just in the same way, if you were standing near a roaring fire, you feel a lot warmer, a lot more heat on your palms than you would if you walked away. But if you do the numbers, you find out that that difference for 5 million kilometers out of 150 is only 7%. That is nowhere near enough to explain the difference of hot and cold from winter to summer. In fact, if anything, it's a paradox because we're closer to the sun in January and further from the sun in July, and you would not make the claim that January was the hottest month of the year in Columbus, Ohio. In fact, quite the opposite. Let's do some real numbers. Now again, these are not numbers I expect you to reproduce. I had to sit down and compute these in detail, but it shows you what it gets into here. On the 21st of June, at the summer solstice, the sun's altitude above the southern horizon is 73 and a half degrees. It's not 90 degrees to be straight up. Zero degrees would be on the, on the horizon. So we never get to straight up and down. We get pretty close. We get within about 16 degrees of straight up and down. In the winter time, on December 21st, when the sun is at the further south it goes, at the winter solstice, the sun is only 26 and a half degrees above the ground. Now, if I take 1,000 watts per square meter as the amount of power that I would get in a square meter of ground if the sun was straight overhead at 90 degrees altitude, and now I tilt the sun over to 73 and a half degrees altitude, the maximum altitude on the summer solstice, I get about 960 watts per square meter. If I now go to December, when the sun is only 26 and a half degrees above the horizon, I get 450 watts per square meter. That's less than half of the amount of power per square meter of ground that I get during noontime on summertime. So this is the amount of power in round numbers at noon in June versus 450 watts per square meter in December 21st. Now compare this to the average high and low temperatures. For typical Columbus weather forecast data, it's between 80 and 58 degrees is the high and low temperature for that day. And these are always, of course, degrees Fahrenheit, because I can't deal with Celsius any better than anyone else can, at least not in this country. 
Whereas in, in January, the historical uh, December 21st, the historical average is a high of 39 degrees and a low of 25. The length of the day is 15 hours in June, but only about nine hours in December on the solstice. And the distance from the sun is 152 and 147 million kilometers, respectively. So even though the difference in the sun distance is 5 million kilometers, that makes no difference for the mean temperature. What matters is the amount of solar energy per square meter that I get because of direct or more indirect light between June and December, coupled with the length of the day, 15 hours versus 9 hours. So it's a twofold effect. More power for longer, less power for shorter. And that's why I'm warmer in the, su in the summer solstice, cooler during the winter solstice. So it's this combination of more power for more hours that makes the north hot and the south cold on the day of the summer solstice and then reverse on the day of the winter solstice. Not to put too fine a point on this, distance doesn't matter for spring or fall. It doesn't even play in the game. It's a tiny third order effect at best. Even though the sun is five million closer 5 million kilometers closer to the sun in January than July, January is the coldest, is one of the coldest months of the year in the north. Now, in reality, the coldest month of the year is February, and the hottest month of the year is not June, it's July and August. Why is that? Because once you heat the earth, that heat has to do something, and one of the things that heat does is either builds up or it falls off, and so there's about a one-month lag because there's heat reservoirs on the earth, the ground to a second order, the oceans to first order are the biggest reservoirs of heat. The oceans cover more area than the, than the land. And so there's a lag of about a month between the hottest day and the coldest days of the year and whether you have the greatest or least amount of solar radiation. That's why the hottest day, even though the longest and most power is in June, the hottest days are in July and August because that heat has to accumulate a bit before it lets loose. Today being a cold rainy day in Columbus accepted, think about it. September is usually pretty nice, nice and warm yesterday and sunny. What was the analogous day within a week of the equinox in the spring like? Well, I remember last year it was snowing in Columbus. So it's not just the sun, it's also what the earth, if you will, does with that sunlight that together make for climate. So as seen from Columbus, we get 7% more solar radiation in January and July, but the amount of power insulation is less than 50%. And those two things are what brings it down. So the bottom line here is that seasonal temperature variations have nothing to do with changes of the Earth-Sun distance and, and have never influenced it. And there's even a lot of wives' tales to say, okay, I'll accept that, Professor, but you know, it's southern summer in the middle of July, and that's when the Earth is closest to the sun, is it not true that the summer is harsher in Africa and South America, hotter on average, than it is at northern climates because of that, that difference? And the answer is no, it doesn't, make, doesn't mean squat. It actually makes no difference whatsoever that, we are, that the southern hemisphere is closer to the sun in southern summer than, we, than, than it is in the wintertime. It's just such a small effect of 7% that it's completely swamped by changes in local climate, dry air versus moist air, amount of cloud cover, proximity to oceans. Those matter so much more than does the distance to the between the Earth and the Sun. 
If the Earth's orbit was much more exaggerated of an ellipse, yeah, then it would start to matter. But it doesn't really matter that much. Okay. Any questions about that before we go on here? Now, I've gone through this class, and except for a few qualifiers I've tossed in, I've said, look, the Earth's pole always points towards the same place in space. And now I'm going to tell you that I, I fibbed a little bit. The Earth's pole does not point to the same place in space, but in fact it slowly, very, very slowly, slides over to the west, opposite of the direction of its orbit and rotation. Kind of like a top spinning on a table, slowly precessing around. And that slow precession is a basically a kind of a slow wobble of the pole. So if I watch where the pole is pointing in the sky, the North Celestial Pole right now is near Polaris, but I waited about a thousand years, I would find the pole will have moved west of Polaris a little bit. In fact, it will move about 1 26th of the, po of the point of a circle in a thousand years. In 26,000 years, it will basically wobble all the way around and then come back to where I left it again. Well, one complete circuit of 360 degrees in 26,000 years is real slow. That's 50 arc seconds per year, or I have to wait 72 years, a human lifetime, for it to move a degree. And a degree is about the coarsest measure you can do with the primitive equipment available to the Greeks. So it's really going to be hard to see this slow westward procession of the equinoxes. In fact, it was discovered only in 150 BC by Hipparchus of Nicaea, a Greek astronomer who had access to Babylonian records going back many centuries. And because he had that multi-century database available, he was able to actually detect the procession of the equinoxes. To see very subtle motions like this, you need to have multi-generational databases and stable cultures where knowledge is transmitted over many centuries and not depending upon single individuals in an oral tradition. You have to have writing invented. So it really wasn't until you had a long baseline that you could see this. Now what causes this are tidal torques from the sun and the moon. And I'll just state that as a fact. We'll talk about this later in the class when we talk about tides of the Earth and moon. Here's the effect. The Earth has a north ecliptic pole. That's the pole of the Earth's orbit, if you will. And in addition to the rotation every day, which is towards the east, the precession is in the opposite direction towards the west. Now I'm going to skip over this thing. Blah. Where the pole star is depends upon time. In 2000 AD, which is close enough to 2006 for our purposes, Polaris is about three quarters of a degree away from the North Celestial Pole. It's not exactly on the pole. It's about a little less than a degree away. In fact, it's getting closer to the pole over time and will come as close as it will ever get to the North Celestial Pole in the year 2099. But if I go backwards in time to the distant past, for example, to 2700 BC, the height of ancient Egyptian civilization, the North Celestial Pole is nowhere near Polaris. In fact, it's very close to the star Thuban in the constellation of Draco. And we have astronomical records from the Old Kingdom of Egypt that shows that Thuban was, in fact, the pole star. A bit of an anachronism you can impress your friends with in Shakespeare class. In Julius Caesar, there's a phrase, as constant as the polar star. When Julius Caesar was assassinated in 44 BC, the Polaris was not the northern polar star. It was at the time of William Shakespeare in the 17th, but it was not the pole star. There was no pole star during the time of the Roman Empire because the procession had moved to an intermediate location. So here's the 
north, celeste, north ecliptic pole, the circle of precession, it's moving towards the west. Today, the north celestial pole is near Polaris at the end of Ursa Minor. In 2700 BC, it was down here near Thuban. At the time of the Roman Empire, there was no North Star. And so people had to navigate by the stars in very different ways. And so the bottom line summary today is that the four seasons are caused by the tilt of the Earth and the changing amount of sunlight through the year, as well as the length of the day. And then we can slide this around with respect to the sky using this slow precession of the equinoxes. And we'll pick up some other consequences of this when we meet again tomorrow. Do you want to talk about the